If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. How's everybody doing tonight? Doing good? We made it Wednesday, right? We're here. We're halfway. Okay. God's good. All right. Um, all of you should have, by this point, received an outline. If you didn't receive an outline for the book of Esther, please raise your hand. One again, one of the ushers or elders will bring you one. Um, I think we need a few more back here. And we'll just wait till everybody has a copy. Um, we put these together. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, um, I put these together. We put these together so that you have a resource as we're studying the Bible so that you understand how the Lord just so beautifully and supernaturally connected all 66 books. And you begin to see the outline and you be able to go deep and understand the, the date, the author, you know, the historical context, what was happening at that time. And that's going to be really important to the book of Esther, to truly understand the book of Esther. I, I'm curious, how many people have read the book of Esther? A few. More than a few in here, okay. Uh, it, it's a beautiful book. It's one of only two books in your Bible that have a woman's name that begins the book. Who can tell me the other book? Ruth. Ruth, all right. All right, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit, your teacher. Good. Um, and so it's interesting that we have Ruth and Esther as these prominent uh, women that the Lord has so used these books. It's interesting that... Uh, we just finished reading, right, Ezra. We just finished reading Nehemiah. And it provided us with a beautiful and historical account of God's um, rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the wall. Certainly, we can understand the historical aspect of it. But also, as we were in Nehemiah chapter 2, one of the most significant passages we have in all of Scripture, we saw the decree from Cyrus that would go forward to command what? There was a decree to go ahead and begin to rebuild the wall. And from that decree, we, we talked about this when we were in Daniel, right? With Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. We know that it would be 483 years till Messiah would come. And it's exactly what he did. 483 years, uh, AD 32. And Messiah came through the triumphal entry as he made his way into Jerusalem. Esther gives us account of what was happening, though, for those who decided not to return. Remember, all God's people return, were told to return and go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> However, if you remember, the first uh, group that went with Zerubbabel, there was about 50,000. The next group was a smaller group. They went back with Ezra. There was about four or 5,000. Okay? And then Nehemiah, again, a small collection, a small group. When you read the book of Esther with me, just so you understand how this sort of uh, comes together, is in Ezra chapter 6 and 7, remember we were going through the book of Ezra? I told you to make a note in your Bibles. This is where the book of Esther sits. It's in between chapter 6 and 7 in the biblical timeline, or chronologically if you prefer, between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. And this is significant. Why is it significant? Because God is giving a word to the people that have chosen to stay back in Babylon, not return obediently, as they were called to do, to go back to Jerusalem. And yet, God is going to show his providence for his people, by the way, even in spite of their obedience, in spite of their 
the fact that they were actually disobedient. And it begins to teach us the real love of Jesus, the real love of God. And that's one of the things that always sort of struck me when I read this book. Without that context, I, I really don't see the magnificent in its entirety of what God is trying to communicate and how God supernaturally preserved the people. Because as we're going to read at that time under the Medo-Persian Empire, they're going to attempt to exterminate all the Jewish people that are remaining left in Babylon. And it's God's desire and design to go through and even in their disobedience, again, to, to save them, to keep them. The book takes place, or as far as it was written, somewhere between 485 and 465 B.C. Now, it's also an important book because it's one of the few books, if the only book in our Bibles, where not one passage, not one jot, not one tittle, not one verse, does it actually ever mention the name of God. One of the only books in the Bible that we have where it doesn't mention the name Jehovah or Adonai or anything of the Lord. Yet, 169 times or more, we are going to read about a pagan king. Isn't that interesting? What is God trying to communicate through that? But we can't help we can't help but see God's providence is all over the place, even when we don't see it say God says or thus says the Lord or how this was done. And what it does is it reminds us that God is in work and has been in work throughout human history, even if we don't see him moving or we don't see his fingerprints. And it's a book to teach us that. You know, every book of the Bible teaches us something a little bit more about the character of God. You know, when I think about the book of Job, uh, it's an antediluvian book, right? It's written pre-flood on the timeline. If I asked you what the thematic point of Job would be, many of you would say, well, I don't want to read that book because it's every time I read that book, something happens. No, um, you would probably come and say thematically in the book of Job, it has everything to do with the understanding that if something bad happens to someone, they must have done something wrong. They must be in sin. Therefore, you get what you deserve, right? We also learned what it is not to have friends like Job as well, right? And not to be counselors like Job's friends. What we learn in Esther, again, is an important character attribute of God and that he's everywhere all the time. And even when we can't see him and we can't understand necessarily what, we, what he's doing because we don't necessarily see the fingerprints, don't see the fragrance, can't even understand, how could God even be in this? And yet it's chalked full of providence of how God goes before. He goes before. He lines up the timing perfectly. And we're going to see it over and over again. And it's truly remarkable for that reason. Ahasuerus is one of the kings we're going to read about. His name you won't find anywhere. We have it in our Bible. It's the Hebrew. But if you were to look in the Medo-Persian documents and you were to look for Ahasuerus, you won't find that name. You would find the name Xerxes, the X-E-R-E-S, and it was Xerxes I. And he was the son of Darius I, who was Darius the Great. And actually, Atesha was his wife. So Darius's and Atesha have a son, and that's Azarus. And what's really remarkable about that is the daughter of Cyrus 
is Atagia, and she marries, like I said, Azarus. And so actually Cyrus is Ahasuerus' grandfather. And again, it's all significant because we read in the book of Ezra at different times, we see the, we see the name Ahasuerus, okay? We'll see the name Cyrus. We saw the name, well, Xerxes or Artaxerxes. And yet we see the providence of God in that too because at one point, if you remember, a letter gets written because the people in the land at that time are so upset that the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall is going to begin that they write a letter to the king and tell him to do what? Please order them to stop building the temple. They're going to try to take over and they're going to threaten you, O king. <laughs> you can't make this up. This is the same king that's going to come and show favor on a Jewish woman that he has no idea, by the way, at first she's Jewish and is going to end up taking a part in saving the Jewish people. I mean, when you really think about that, so I, I, it's, we should never be able to echo, our God isn't big enough, our God isn't great enough because he can work through kings and through periods and through times. As a matter of fact, if you, if you hold your finger here, turn in your Bible to Proverbs. Since we're so close to it, turn, in, turn to Proverbs chapter 21, please. Lest we think there's such a thing as a coincidence or luck, our Bibles and the book of Esther teach us there is no such thing as luck. That word doesn't exist in Scripture. It doesn't exist. And, and, and Esther actually is the book that proves that. Proverbs chapter 21 and look with me at verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it, whichever or wherever he wishes. And isn't that what he did with the Medo-Persian kings? One minute not to have favor, the next minute all of a sudden have favor, and oh, by the way, pay for the rebuilding of the temple? And before we get too far as we begin here in this book, we're also going to read, again, another prophetic passage or an element that leads to a prophetic passage because Ahasuerus or Xerxes, if you prefer, who arrives on the scene was actually prophesied. God had actually gone several years before he spoke to Daniel and you might remember the dream, the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, he had this dream of a, a, a figure of a statue, the head, the arms. You remember that? Well, some of you are looking at me. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. If you look at Daniel chapter 2, I draw our attention to verse 21. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 26. Daniel chapter 2, verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Again, that's the Babylonian name, right? Are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen, its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and he said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And he goes through, and we're going to read this in a moment. He tells him about this. But just think about, I mean, that was 605, somewhere right around 605. We're at least 100 years, 485, at least 100 years later than this time. But this is, this is the dream that he was given. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. Verse 31, this great image was splendor, was excellent, stood before you, and it was form, was awesome. The image, the image's head was of fine gold. Do you know what kingdom that was speaking of? Babylon. That's right, Babylon. It's chest and arms of silver. Two different things, chest and arms, or arms if you prefer, two. Wouldn't that make sense? Because Medes and Persians. It's belly and thighs of bronze. What does that speak to? The Greek, right? The Greek empire and kingdom. And look at verse 33. It's the fourth. It's legs of irons. It's feet partly of iron and partly of clay. That's speaking of the Roman empire, at least the first part. It's leg of iron. And then it talks about a kingdom that hasn't yet to come. It's still prophetic for you and I too today. We will not be here, I believe, when this kingdom comes. We'll be raptured out. We'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. We'll be looking down from the mezzanines, but there is coming another kingdom. And this passage tells us, just as accurate as it was to describe the Medo-Persian Ahasuerus, is just as accurate as it is to describe the Antichrist kingdom to come. And that's the fifth kingdom that's listed here partly of clay. It's a mixture of a revived Roman empire, one of iron, but weaker, intermingled with the clay, a substance that makes it not as strong. And he says in verse 34, and this is wonderful news, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. When we think of a stone, or we think of a rock. Who in Scripture is a rock? Or who is our foundation? Who is the rock of ages? It's his kingdom. His kingdom that's going to come when we all come back with him, right? After the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. He says, you watched while a stone was cut out with hands which struck an image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff, praise the Lord, from the thrummer's freshing floors. The wind carried them away and no trace was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It speaks of the coming kingdom. God is coming again. Amen. You can turn back to Esther. I just thought it was fun as we were going through this and just eschatology. I love studying end times events in scripture. And you can't help but even studying the book of Esther, you get, can't even get through verse one and you see prophetically of what was already decreed or declared come to pass and what is coming again. I'm going to bow my head, we'll pray, and then we'll begin going line by line. Father, we do... Lord, I, I'm sure my brothers and sisters and friends here, we marvel. Lord, we look back and see these things, and yet there's so many things still yet to come, Lord. And yet it's 100% perfect, Lord. There's no other 
a literary work, anything on this earth that, that, that's like this, Lord. This is, this is wonderful. It's God-breathed. Lord, as we begin this journey in this beautiful book of Esther, Lord God, I pray you will continue to show us more of yourself, Jesus, more of who you are, God. You will continue to show us just your sovereignty. Lord, your name doesn't even need to be written or even mentioned, and yet, God, how can we even begin to move through this book without seeing your hand all over it? Just like your hand is all over our lives today. Even, Lord, even when we feel like we're alone, even when we think, Lord, what, where are you? You're moving all the pieces in place. You're shoring us up and holding us tight. And God, you are faithful. You are love. God, you are good. Thank you, Father, for all that you're going to show us through this book, all that you're going to show us tonight. And Lord, all the things you've already shown us, you are God alone, and we will worship no one else, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, have your way in us tonight. Knock our socks off, spiritually speaking, and uh, have your way in us, Jesus Christ, as we begin a new book together in unity, one body of believers in Christ Jesus. And all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. I'm really excited to begin this book with you guys. It's a really awesome book. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia in the days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that the third of his reign made a feast for an for his officers and servants in the power of Persia and Media. The nobles and the princes of the provinces began before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple silver rods of marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white, black, marble, and they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Hazarus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abatha, Zether and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to share her beauty to the people, show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti re refused to come at the king's command and brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner, told all those who knew the law and justice, 
those closest to him being Karshina, or Karshahana, Shethar, Adamathar, Tarshish, Merses, Marsana, Marakan, then the seven princes of Persia and Meda, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the king or did not obey, obey, the, obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Mechuman answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes and all the people who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day was the day, or sorry, this very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they've heard of the behavior of the queen, that there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be ordered that Vasti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her a royal position or let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she and when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memekin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Got all that? You ready for the quiz? All right, what's going on here? If we just took a first, you know, stroke through this, we might, uh, you know, rake through this like that. We're going to miss a whole lot if we don't understand the historical context of what was really going on here at this time. First of all, it's important to understand Ahasuerus. Who was his father again? Darius. Darius the Great or Darius the First. Why is that significant? Because in 490 AD, Darius decided that he was going to go to battle and he was going to go and try to conquer all of these nations. But there was one particular country he had his eye on. Anybody know who that is? That's right. Who said that? They got it right. The Greeks. That's right. He went to fight with the Greeks. Was beaten terribly. Beaten terribly. Ahasuerus was around to watch that. At this point in time, Ahasuerus, because as all this is happening here, before this, his focus was so turned to going through and beginning an evasion to try to pick up where his father left off and was unsuccessful. And so what is happening in these first five verses, or six verses right here on this page, is you see him calling together and beginning to build his army and what he's about to go out and do. You guys all got that from the first six verses, right? That that was history, hermeneutics, context is king. So now it explains. Now let's read that with that understanding that what he's actually doing here, because he goes through and he describes these 127 provinces and why he's putting this feast together and why he's over six months going to have individual come and visit him and he's going to show them around. He's going to, you know, show, look at the glory of the kingdom. Look what's going on. You're with me, right? You're with me. Yep, yep, good. Okay, he travels back. Okay, the next one out of the 127, you come in. So on and so forth for six months. This is, this is what was going on. 
And he's doing this all in attempt, again, to build this alliance. To do what? To go back and go fight against Greece. And this time avenge his dad's loss, Darius the Great. He's going to lose that battle. Ten years later, 480. He actually, at the beginning of that battle, does very well. He conquers several different areas. But at the last skirmish, he goes through and he actually uh, gets defeated in, in Marathon, of all places. And he, well, his dad actually, Darius, got defeated in Marathon. He comes through and he gets um, defeated and basically turns his attention back to domestic affairs, which is why he comes back and afterwards turns his attention from Vashti to this woman who eventually will be in his court named Esther. So this is how this whole thing sets up. Initially, it's all about looking to what's happening externally that gets defeated and comes home kind of pouting, sad, unhappy with what had just happened. And now he's like, you know what? I'm just going to turn my focus locally, right where I'm at. Okay, so this sets up the scene here. So now let's, let's, with that understanding historically, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, as we just read, Xerxes I. This was Ahasuerus who reigned, and he's talking about, again, the two arms and the silver of Mede and Persia, which was already, again, we talked about from Daniel chapter 2, verse 26. Israel's one of these provinces... He reigns over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Okay, what does that mean? From the continent of Asia all the way to the continent of Africa. We're talking 2,578 miles if I was to use a straight line. That's a lot of territory. This is a very powerful man, a very powerful king. Okay? And it says in the days when King Ahasuerus sat on his throne in his kingdom, which was in Shushan. Dude, that sounds familiar to us. Shushan, it's one of the three capital cities. It was actually the Winter Palace. Who else was in Shushan that we know about that served the king there? Nehemiah. Nehemiah, remember that? Nehemiah came out of Shushan. He came out of this area. So here we are reintroduced to it again, right? The citadel. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. He's talking about the 127. He's making this feast and he's going to invite them all to it. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excess majesty for many days, 180 days in all, this is how long it took to have and host 127 provinces. It took almost six months because it wasn't all at once. He's bringing them in one at a time or a couple at a time, and he's showing them all the splendor to coax them into saying, you know, hail the king, I'm with you. And when these days were completed, okay, the king made a feast lasting seven days now for all the people who were presidents, now he's also going to gather all the locals and he's bringing them in and he's going to have a feast for them because he's going to get all them on board as well. This is what we would call politicking. From great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains. That was, by the way, the royal colors of the Persians. 
And it fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods, marble pillars, as we read, the couches were gold and silver. I mean, you're seeing the splendor and the riches here. This is what's being painted, you know, pointed out to us. The pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. What does that tell us? It is so priceless. These were all handcrafted. Each one was unique. It's not like they went out and said, I'll have a dinner set for a hundred and, you know, whatever, a hundred and uh 27, please, and they all look the same, right? Some of us have um, china at home or, or, or nice dishes, and we have a pattern, and the pattern all looks the same. He is so wealthy and so powerful that he had handcrafted basically these golden vessels, and each one was unique. Not one, not two existed the same way. That, that's the kind of riches that's being poured out. Why is this all building? Because Vashti's going to look at this king and say, no, this had never been done before. Nobody would be alive and even begin to try to do something like this to a king of the Mede and Persians. This, this is what's setting the stage. This is, what, this is what the Lord's trying to show us through this here, right? So it says it was in abundance and the generosity of the king. They had royal wine in abundance, so they began drinking and consuming alcohol. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, okay? At that time, there were other times where the king said, no, everybody will partake of the wine, right? In this particular case, he's saying he didn't make it compulsory. Those that wanted to have a glass of wine could have a glass of wine. Those who did not weren't required to do so. For the, for the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. It, it, what each person wanted, okay? Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women. So we clearly understand what's going on here. There's a feast that he's inviting his officers, his noblemen, and it's only men. She is having a separate feast at that same time for their wives or concubines, and that's in a separate area. They're not cross-pollinating, nor would that have been proper at that time. It wouldn't have been right for them to come together. This is also part of what is difficult for Queen Vashti here, okay? So she makes this feast for the woman in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus, because men and women would have, would again, have been separate. On the seventh day, the heart of the king was merry. What, what does that mean with wine? He's drunk. He's intoxicated, intoxicated okay? And he's going to command. Now, what does the Bible tell you and I? First of all, it's not, it's not a sin to have, well, uh, let me clarify this. If you are an overseer, 1 Timothy 3, you're a pastor, you lead a ministry, you do something as an overseer, 1 Timothy 3 clearly says that I'm never to have uh, in an, uh, a glass of wine or any alcohol. That's what the Bible teaches. First Timothy 3, it's not difficult to understand. But the body of Christ is not told that you couldn't have a glass of wine here, there, whatever. But the Bible clearly teaches we're never to be drunkards, right? We do understand the difference there, right? If, if you wanted to have a glass of wine, you could but the Bible also says some things about that, too, and I want to point that out because uh, we don't have to go very far in our New Testament. Ephesians 5.18 makes a very uh, clear delineation that wine, you're going to be controlled by something or influenced by something. What you choose to be influenced with was going to have a difference. And you might say, what are you talking about? Well, hold your finger here. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 5 
And I'd like to draw your attention to verse 18. So while the Bible may allow, we certainly can get an understanding that there's a lot of things that we have liberty but may not be good for us necessarily either. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, it says, and do not be drunk with wine. So there's no question about it. There is no ability for a Christian to be a drunkard. That is contrary to scripture. It's not debatable. There is no uh, desire that we should have to continue drinking to the point of intoxication and, and being a drunkard. Okay. We, we, I think we all can settle that here. It's right here now. We understand that. Okay. But what he goes on to say is interesting because it explains a little bit of why. And do be not drunk, do not be drunk with wine in which is your dissipation, but be filled, but ye be filled with the Spirit. That's a conjunction. He's saying, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with what? Spirit. Isn't that interesting? You know, my pastor made it very simple for me when, when I was um, called out into ministry, or even when I served up there, to not consume alcohol. There was one time where, flat out, I would say I was an alcoholic. I don't know how else to say it, just being transparent before you. Um, I thought nothing of getting drunk or being intoxicated and um, just being honest and, and real with you. And even after I was saved, I still struggled with, you might say, um, just having a single drink. And when I read this passage, it changed everything for me. When I began to understand, but be filled with the Spirit. And I began to think about that in the terms of others and not myself. In other words, what if one night one of you call up because you end up in the hospital, something's wrong, and you're rushed to the emergency room, and, and maybe you struggle with alcohol as I once did. Um, and I come in, and I certainly I know First Timothy says I'm not to have any alcohol. I get that, but I'm saying, follow along with what I'm saying here. What if I got there, and there was alcohol on my breath? And I said, hello, and that became a stumbling block for you. And I wasn't able to minister to you. I wasn't able to help you because you looked at me, and you're like, oh, but I'm struggling. The last thing I ever want to do is hurt somebody else. I don't want to entrap them or stumble them. So for me, it was, it was pretty simple. After that point, it was, I chose, you know, even before I was a pastor, not to drink anymore. And I, and I haven't. And um, it's so amazing how the Lord has, has taken that desire from me. But he says here, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, and he contrasts that again. He says, look, don't be drunk with wine, in which is your dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's almost contrasting them. That you can have a glass of wine. You're, you, are, you are at liberty to do so. It would not be a sin for any, unless you're in leadership or uh, an overseer in here in some capacity. It would not be a sin for any one of you to have a glass of wine or a, an alcoholic beverage if you were consuming it, not to be intoxicated, but to enjoy a glass of wine. It would, it would not be sinful for you. But just because it's not sinful for you doesn't mean it's something that's also what? Good for you either. And so I choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And that was something that, again, was very striking to me. I mean, there's several passages we look in Scripture. I just like to look at this. This isn't to condemn anybody or convict anybody. It's not about that. It's just because it's good to understand what does God's Word say about consuming alcohol. Because unfortunately today, friends, there's, there's pastors in pulpits that are saying, you know what? It's okay for pastors and, and even overseers to drink alcohol, to go to um, pubs and have Bible studies in the back of pubs. Re no, really. And there's churches that you can go in and order a draft beer before the study. And, and I, you're, some of you are thinking, I'm, I know it. I think I can see you think I'm making it up. I'm not. There are churches like that out there today. And, and, and if you ask that pastor why, he would tell you, well, I'm trying to reach that next generation. I'm trying to reach that person that would not normally come into a church. And then I said, well, what do you do when you go through passages like we're going to look at here in a moment that really say drinking alcohol is not a good idea? And he says, well, then we, we tell them you shouldn't drink any alcohol. I, I go, so you baited and switched them? You, you ever see a sale in a newspaper, uh, you know, $5 for, come on in, you can get, you know, a chance to win a car or, you know, whatever, something like that. You go in, okay, that's great. Only to find out, well, no, we were talking about this little toy Tonka truck. <laughs> but it's not an actual vehicle, right? You know, that's called a bait and switch. It's actually illegal, right? It's illegal to bait and switch someone that way. Well, let's look in our Bible. We'll take a few minutes uh, with our time here. We're going to go a little bit uh, longer than normal, but, and then we're going to go through the rest of this passage in chapter 1. If you look at, um, please, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. This is how the Bible describes alcohol, okay? Please don't be mad at me. I'm, I'm, I'm directing us to the Scriptures. Please don't be upset with me. Again, this is not, this is not to condemn anybody, browbeat anybody. I want to be very clear. The Lord is faithful. I want you to know that. The Lord is faithful. If you are struggling with alcohol addiction, if you are struggling with things like that, God is faithful to deliver you. He loves you. Please don't ever give up and stop having hope. Don't do that because God wants to deliver all, all of us from whatever it is, it, it, whether it's drugs or pornography or whatever men and women struggle with. He wants to deliver us from these things. He's faithful to begin the work he began. Amen. Amen. Wine is a mocker. Chapter 20 of Proverbs. Oh my. Do you want a mocker? I mean, the way it even so wine's a mocker. It's like, oh my. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever's led astray by it is not wise. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. We'll come back to that. I want to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 21. All right. Verse 
Well, let's back up to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfless ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness. Drunkenness made that list, okay? Rivalries and alike, of which I tell you before, and just as I've told you in times, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me just be clear on what this is saying here. This is not saying that those who have had a drink and gotten drunk and are struggling with this and are trying to give it to the Lord are destined to go to hell. That's not what this is saying. This is someone who's compromising and saying the aim is not to stop drinking, but I'm going to presumptuously sin even though God says don't sin. In other words, I don't think this applies to me. You ever heard anybody say that, or have you ever said that to yourself? Uh, you know, I understand that, Lord. These sins are sins, but this one doesn't apply to me. I, I, get a, I got a get-out-of-jail card. I got a pass, right? That's what it's talking about. Someone who continuously, presumptuously sins that way against God. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter, since we're already over there, Romans chapter 13, and let's look at 13. Romans chapter 13, 13. To your left. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in rivalry or what? Drunkenness. So again, we see clearly that drunkenness is never a lie. It's, it's not acceptable. It's a sin. It's, it's not something God is ever calling us to do. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 34. Jesus talks to us about the practical in this section of Scripture, okay? He's, he's talking to us about the practical. And he says, But take heed of yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that the day, what day is he talking about? Come and on you unexpectedly, and you're not ready for it. Can you imagine if the rapture was coming and you were drunk and passed out? He told us it comes like a thief in the night. Nobody knows the time or the hour. How about Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22? Make our way back to our passage tonight. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22 says, Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drinks who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. You know, it's just interesting. If you read scripture and we just, you know, for time's sake, we don't have time tonight to go through every single passage about alcohol. But God does not speak of alcohol highly whatsoever in the Bible. As a matter of fact, he calls it a mocker, as we read. He, he, he calls it something that bites like a serpent. He, he doesn't in any way say it's something that's good for us, right? 
You, you can turn back to Esther. I, I bring this up because this is going to lead to a problem right now. Because Ahasuerus is intoxicated. And his friends that are all there, the noblemen, the king, all of these men that have come, they're all intoxicated. And what they're going to do is he says he commands Mesheshman, Bestha, Herbana, Bigtha, Abakatha, Jether, and Carcass, these seven eunuchs. What are eunuchs? Eunuchs, well, I don't know how it's to say it. Um, they were men that were castrated. And the reason they were castrated is so they wouldn't be a threat to the king's harem. So they wouldn't be a threat to the queen. And so they would have these men castrated and they would serve in this presence and in this capacity. And that's what we read in verse 10. So he sends to them and he says, bring me Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown. Now I know there's some commentators out there that try to uh, say that, you know, okay, what this is implying is bring Queen Vashti without clothes and just her crown only. That's not what this is saying. If I asked you what a crown is symbolic for, what would you say? Royalty. It speaks to an office. It speaks to an office, yes? It, it speaks to a position, a government position. A royal, she's a queen. Come in your official duty. Should she even have been invited to this? No, because the law already stated that the men and women were to be separate at the feast times like this, especially when the men were already intoxicated. This is not going to end well. And so I understand in some aspects Vashti's perspective. She knows what's happening over there. So you want me to put on my crown and my, you know, and go over there as office of the queen because she, as the Bible would say, she's beautiful. But to do what? To show all of these provinces and these people my beauty when they're all drunk? This isn't like admire her character. She's a wonderful person and she's beautiful on the inside and out. That's not what Ahasuerus is doing here. Wine is a mocker. Wine is a mocker. And so he says, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Well, this is a public challenge because he's a king and it's a request for her to present herself in her public office. This is why it's a problem. If he had just commanded her to do this separately without the crown or come because I would love... It would still have been wrong to deny the king, but at least it wouldn't, have been a, it wouldn't have been a denial of the office or a royal decree. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, at the king's command brought by his eunuchs, and therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him, right? Um, certainly, we all know this would have been... It, <laughs> improper from an etiquette perspective. I don't think, uh, and why am I saying that? Because even in the Medo-Persian Empire, women at that time, they would walk around with veils. Much like there's certain parts of the Middle East or other areas where you see women that will not walk around exposing their whole face or they put a veil and a, uh, you know, they put a head covering on. 
So even what he's asking her to do, while she could be completely clothed, is still unethical according to their own law, according to the law of the Mede and Persian. So then the king said, this is a problem, right? This is a problem. So the king said to the wise men who understood the times, what is this speaking about? For the king's manner, what does that mean? You are going to see more references to pagan and luck and favor and all this. What it's speaking here is astrology. That's what it's talking about. The king's manner were those that he kept on the payroll that would be uh, star watchers, stargazers, those that would look at astrology and make decisions based on the alignment of stars or horoscopes as we, you would think of it today. Things that were tied into the occult. Things that we would know as occult practices. He says, they understood the times. For this was the king's manner toward the law and knew the justice. The closet... Those closest, excuse me, to him being, and then we go through the list of people we read, verse 15, what shall we do to the queen, Vashti, according to the law, because she did not obey the king Ahasuerus, bought by her eunuchs? Again, not just because of the public declaration, but because of her office as queen. And Mechumen answered before the king and the princes. I can't help but thinking this guy has his wife probably over with the queen and the people, and he's thinking, I got to ride back to one of these 128 provinces, and I'm going to hear about this whole thing, right? He's, he says, you hear, you know, what the queen did, and so he's probably looking at it selfishly, not necessarily for the king's interests here. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes, and that's why I can say I think he's looking at it from a personal perspective as well, Right? He's looking at it from a government, but also a personal way of King Azra's. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women. What's he worried about? Rebellion, right? He doesn't want the rebellious heart within the marriages. We keep reading and we go to verse 18. It says, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia, the wives and their advisors and media will all say to the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. She did it. Why can't we do it? Right? I really think that that's what uh, Mechiman was all about. Less about the office, more about he was worrying about his own situation in his ride home. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes. Why is that significant? Because the law of the Persians means could never be altered. It could never be altered. Once it was written down, it was, there was no going back and changing it. So that it will be not altered, and Vashti shall, shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. So when it says disposed, or he's going to remove her royal position there, again, it teaches us and draws us back that this is a governmental as well as a personal rebuke. He's, he's, he's saying she... Not only is she still going to be, she'll still be part of his harem. She will still be personally cared for, but she will no longer serve in a royal office. It says that it should be given to another one who is better than she. When the king's decree, which will, he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Again, this man, Mechaman, he thinks he's doing this all of his volition, doesn't he? He thinks he's doing this to save marriages and save the kingdom. 
What he has no idea is that God is moving all of this in place and allowing it, certainly not wanting him to, certainly a hazardous, be drunk and have this feast and all that. But God is working in spite of what he's doing, what they're doing. And he's doing it to align Esther so that she can come in and have that place to be able to guide or specifically in, in one capacity actually saves the king life because Mordecai will hear of uh, a threat to the king and it will be reported because that's Mordecai's, Esther's cousin. So it says, and the reply pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Mechumen. Then he sent letters to all the kings and provinces to each province, its own script. In other words, they're all leaving at this point. They're heading back to their provinces and to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his own house and speak to the language of his own people, right? Once again, we see government trying to get involved in matters of the home. See, nothing new, friends, nothing new, right? Now, we're going to stop there tonight, and it's, it's sort of a good introduction, yeah? It's a good foundation for us, chapter 1, because what we're going to see in chapter 2 is we're going to be see, start to see God aligning all of this. Um, it's powerful, but there's a break between chapter 1 and 2 where he's going to go and have that skirmish in regard, regards to the Greek, the Greece and to go after that, and he's going to lose. And so what's going to happen is he's going to come back home before chapter two starts and he's going to be despondent. He's going to be sorrowful because he just lost that military victory or military excursion, excuse me, not victory. And so he's going to come back and he's going to be sitting there and he's going to be thinking, gosh, I miss Queen Vashti. And God's going to allow that and he's going to draw his attention, but to someone that he's never met, someone with such humility and beauty that literally he's not going to know whether he's coming or going. Amen? All right, if you're able to stand, please stand. And It's an interesting place to stop as we stop between chapter 1 and 2. But hopefully, foundationally, this is good. Hang in there. If you're looking and going, I don't understand what's going on, I promise you by the time we get through chapter 2, it'll become very clear how God is moving in his providence. I'd like to ask, uh, well, you know what, because of our time here, I'm gonna, I am going to ask the uh, musicians to come up for a closing song. Uh, it's important to worship our Lord. It's important to worship our God. But um, just be thinking about this. I don't, as I said, I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in luck. We're going to see uh, that there's no such thing in the book of Esther. So as we're studying this scripture, I want us to be aware, and I want us to start thinking about how is God moving in our lives, maybe in ways that we don't even yet see. What are the things he's doing? How is he putting or aligning or moving different things? And yet we have no understanding whatsoever of any of it. And God's timing is perfect. And we're going to see that through this teaching. We're going to see that through the book. And I want us to be sensitive to that in our own lives. What is God doing in our homes? Even when we think he's not moving. Because friends, he is. Amen. Father, we just thank you. Um, Lord, what a beautiful book. Just a beautiful beginning to our study, God. We pray, continue to reveal all that you have, these pearls to us, Lord. Continue to string these pearls as we see, Lord, and learn more about your character, more about you, more about your glory. And God, may we be looking and understanding and learning 
that God, even when we don't see you or, Lord, feel you, Jesus, you're alive, you're on the throne, you're madly in love with us, we're in love with you, and you're working all the time. You never sleep, you never slumber, you're going before us even right now, Lord. And we just thank you, Lord, for all the ways we have no idea, this side of attorney, of the ways you have already gone before us, protected us, kept us, and the ways that you will, Lord. Because again, you who've begun the good work will finish that good work in us. We thank you, Jesus Christ. We want to worship you now. Please receive all the glory and honor you are due. We pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and God's people pray. Amen.